Good morning, church. Are you well today? Yeah, good. I know that there's a there are a number of us who are away this weekend or out with other uh, commitments. So thank you for being here and for uh, making this a priority. And I am uh, excited and thankful for the opportunity as well. I'm looking forward to our time this morning uh, in the scripture. So I do encourage you to um, to stay for the vision meeting afterwards, as Andre mentioned. I think we'll be covering some things that, well, that we trust and pray will be an encouragement to you. But for now, we do want to turn our attention to uh, the scripture. And so take your Bible, please, and, and meet me in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Uh, picture this scene with me. You've been, you've been traveling for some time, uh, maybe living out of a duffel or some suitcase of sorts, uh, hopping from city to city, and when you set out on this trip, you weren't sure where you were going or for how long you'd be gone. But now, after three years and about 2,800 miles, you sense the trip is nearing its end. And I'm just curious, what are you thinking and feeling at this moment? Maybe tired? Just uh, exhausted because you really have given everything you, you have to give? Maybe a bit exhilarated? Uh, excited for the people you met, uh, the places you saw, the, the things you experienced. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe, maybe both tired and exhilarated. Whatever it is, uh, just try to put yourself in that situation because that's where we find the Apostle Paul as we come to this morning's text. Paul's second great missionary journey uh, was coming to an end. And we have a map here, just our map that we've been using here. So you remember that, that Paul began right here. This is where the trip began in Antioch. And he's traveled all this way, he and his team, across the Aegean Sea, come into the Western world, Macedonia, down to Achaia. And right now he is here in Corinth. That's where we're picking up the story. And we'll see that uh, as we walk our way through today's text, he's going to cross over the Aegean, back over the Aegean, into Asia, and then all the way across the Mediterranean to Judea, and then make his way back up to Antioch. This trip uh, began about three years earlier. He left when it was about the year 49 or 50 A.D. It's covered just under... 3,000 miles, and now it's drawing to a close. He had traveled through at least seven different provinces, by my count, and uh, and at least 20 different cities. Luke's record of this trip began back in chapter 15, verse 40, in the city of Antioch, and by the time we get to chapter 18 today, verse 22, Paul has come full circle back to the church in Antioch, to the church that commissioned him and was no doubt awaiting his return and the news of his ministry. And by verse 23, with hardly a break in the narrative, Luke begins telling the account of Paul's third 
missionary journey. And so because today's text, I just want us to see that, uh, that you know, the, 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 the transition from his first to his second journey was very clear. There was a very clear break. And that's not the case here in the transition from his second trip to his third. And so what I want us to do today, because today's text is kind of a transition that moves us from one trip to the next, I just want to pause long enough to reflect on the trip that was and how the Christian movement continued to grow. Because the mission of God and God's people is meant to multiply. Just as it moved from person to person in Paul's day and from Paul's day to ours, it's important that we also we see ourselves and that we must share in the mission ourselves and help others do the same. So let's read this together. Acts chapter 18, and we'll be reading from 18 through uh, 28, through the end of the chapter. And again, we pick this up with the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth. After this, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for these moments we share in your word each week, really the moments that we come together and share as a church. We want to thank you for the moments today. We don't want to take these particular moments. We don't want to take them for granted. And so we're just very appreciative uh, for the opportunity we have today to gather in this place and to pray together and to declare our praise, to, um, to really express the desire of our heart through prayer and song and music. And now, God, we come to the scripture and we really want to hear from you. We confess that to hear your voice, we need your help. 
And so please help us today uh, to, to understand your word. Help us to be um, receptive of your word. Help us to be doers of it, we pray, uh, so, that we, so that these moments now would, would have an effect on our moments throughout this week and even through the course of our lives. Uh, we commit all of this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Once again, here Luke is describing the conclusion of Paul's second journey. And in doing so, I just, I've noticed here that he makes a few comments about Paul's mindset that I find helpful when considering how to further the cause of Christ in our world today. Uh, comments that reveal Paul's personal devotion to God, his continual dependence on God, and his strong commitment to God's church. And these are the things, or at least some of the things, that I want to consider with you this morning. First, after a year and a half in Corinth, maybe a bit longer, give or take a few weeks or months, Paul sensed that it was time to go. And so he traveled east from Corinth, about six and a half miles, to the port city of Centrea, where he would board a ship and sail across, back across the Aegean Sea before landing at the western shore of the province of Asia. And at Centria, he had cut his hair, Luke writes, for he was under a vow. Now, this, this really interests me that Paul was under a vow. Most believe that this was a Nazarite vow that was known in practice in Jewish culture for hundreds of years, the details of which are found in our Old Testament, uh, particularly in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. And uh, basically, it was a pledge of personal devotion. Whenever a person made this vow, and either men or women, both men and women would make this vow, whenever a person made this vow, he was pledging to separate himself to the Lord. He would abstain from wine. He would abstain from all strong drink. From wine vinegar, again, all of this is in Numbers chapter 6, he would abstain from any juice of the grape uh, or even from eating grapes. He would not eat either fresh grapes or dried grapes. In fact, he ate nothing produced from the vine, from the grapevine, not even the seeds of the grape or the skin of the grape. The pledge, as we see here, the pledge also involved not cutting your hair, and then a third thing, uh, it involved not going near a dead body. Uh, in a culture that distinguished between clean and unclean, the idea was to be fully set apart to God. And as Numbers chapter 6 verse 8 puts it, uh, all the days of his separation, he is to be holy to the Lord. Paul likely entered this vow at some point during his stay in Corinth. Maybe it was near the beginning of his ministry there at that time, remember, when he was just strongly opposed by the Jews. Maybe it was when he received his vision from the Lord. We looked at this last week. 
when Jesus told him to not be afraid and to keep on speaking. Maybe it was when Paul was brought into court and falsely accused. Uh, but Gallio uh, just quickly dismissed the case. Maybe it was after seeing many of the Corinthians come to faith in Christ. Or perhaps it's possible that Paul made this vow with an eye toward what was coming next. Vows like this were usually made either as a show of gratitude for what God has done or as a way of seeking God's future blessing. Whatever it was that prompted this pledge, it was definitely an act of personal devotion. Now, understand that Paul was not obligated to make a vow. This was done completely uh, of his own volition. It was voluntary. So when we think about what this may mean for us in our culture today, it doesn't mean that we must vow ourselves in this exact way. Trust me, I have tried. I have. I have tried growing my hair long. Uh, and that was not a good decision. In fact, when I see, I've seen pictures of myself with longer hair, and the only thing I can think of is, is where were my friends? Where were the people who cared enough about me to say something? To just say that that was not a good look. So this wasn't about growing, this, this, today, this isn't about growing your hair long or avoiding dead bodies or abstaining from wine or alcohol because Lord knows that would be a big give for some of us. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, it's not about that. However, I do believe that this serves as a simple but necessary reminder that there are times in life when an extra display of our devotion to God is warranted. An extra display. Times when we choose we choose to do certain things and or abstain from other things as a public demonstration that we belong to the Lord and we love the Lord. Just as marriage vows are voluntary commitments made in love for another person, they are personal commitments that are made publicly I just, I just believe there are times, aren't there, when our commitment to God is meant to be seen and heard and observed and known by others. And so is it possible, and I know that, that, that this is catching you off guard, but maybe this is something for you to think about this week. Is it possible that God may be laying on your heart in this time of your life this season you're in, this circumstance you're facing, is it possible that God may be laying on your heart the need to make a pledge of personal devotion? Something different. Something outside your typical routine. Something in addition. What worshipful vow 
might you make or undertake as an expression of your set-apartness to God. Now, in addition to Paul's devotion to God, notice also his dependence on God. When the ship arrived in Asia and they disembarked at the city of Ephesus, uh, Paul, as was his custom, he found the local synagogue and he began reasoning with the Jews. Now, the Jews in Ephesus, we learn, were much more receptive to those in Corinth. And as such, they wanted him to stay longer. Please don't go, Paul. Please stay. We want to continue this conversation much, much longer. But Paul, Paul took leave of them, according to verse 21, saying, I will return to you if God wills. Excuse me. In other words, although Paul was willing, here's the point, although Paul was willing he continually relied on God's will more than his own. Now, when we think about God's will, I think it's helpful and important to distinguish between what's been called the revealed will of God and what we might call the hidden will of God. The most obvious example of the revealed will of God is his word. It's the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, because the Bible was was written by authors who were carried along by the Spirit of God as they wrote. Though they wrote at different times in history and from different geographical locations, and though they wrote in different genres, though their own personalities obviously come through on occasion, each of them was inspired in their writing by the one and only Holy Spirit. That's why each of the 66 books of the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New, that's why each of them tell one consistent story, the Bible, that tells one consistent story from beginning to end. It's because the Holy Spirit, who inspired and carried along Moses when he wrote the book of Genesis is the same Holy Spirit who inspired and carried along John when he wrote the book of Revelation, and the same Holy Spirit who inspired all the authors in all the books in between. Luke wrote the book of Acts, but it was the Holy Spirit who inspired and carried Luke along. So whenever we want to know God's will on a given issue or a decision to be made, the first place to look is where? The Bible. The first place to look is the Bible. I'm curious what what God's will is for me in this area of my life. I'm curious what God would have to say or what God's will is for me in this decision I'm facing. And the first place to look is the Bible. What does the Bible say about this or that issue? How does the Bible inform this or that decision? Because listen, God will never advise a person to be or do something that contradicts what he has revealed in Scripture. However, 
there are times when things aren't as clear. And so we must consider what we might call the hidden will of God. And by hidden, we mean unknown. Uh, Not unknown to God, of course, but to us. So in the book of James, for example, James writes in chapter 4 of that book, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So instead, James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. The example here is that because we don't know what the future holds, because that part of God's will is presently hidden from us, we should live in a way in which our plans are always in submission to his plan for us. doesn't mean that we can't plan or even shouldn't. It simply means that his plans come first. The proverb says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Paul had already remember. Uh, rem- Paul would, had already been reminded of this reality earlier on this journey. Remember, it was near the beginning of the trip when he and Silas and Timothy were leaving the region of Galatia. And remember, they had planned to go into Asia when the Holy Spirit said no. And so they did an about face, and they uh, intended to go into Bithynia. And yet again, the Holy Spirit said no. So God closed these doors in order to direct them to the city of Troas and ultimately into the Western world. It was God's way of extending the message of Jesus into new untapped regions. I think like Paul then, sometimes we need to say yes to things that we hadn't previously considered. And we need to be willing to say no to things, to those things that we had considered. Because God may may close some doors that seem very obvious to us and open other doors that aren't obvious at all. Now this also means... I'm, I'm saying that by using Paul's example here, it also means that there are times, there are times when we need to stop and wait for clear direction from God before proceeding. But usually, as we saw with Paul and Silas and Timothy, usually it's better to just keep moving and trust God to direct you as you go. Unless God says, clearly says, we have an example of this, when Jesus ascended at the very beginning of Acts, Jesus ascended, and what did he say to the disciples? He says, go back to Jerusalem and wait. I just want you to wait there until the Holy Spirit comes. So unless we have a clear example, unless God is clearly saying to us, hey, I want you to stop 
and I want you to wait. I think the, the, the general tenor of Scripture, what we see in Scripture, is it's better to move out knowing that God is with you and he will lead you as you go. So when Paul leaves Ephesus, he says, he says to the Ephesians, he says, yes, I, I want to come back and I will come back if that's what God wills. And with that, he set sail for the region of Judea on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. And so next, observe Paul's commitment to the church when he arrives at Judea at the city of Caesarea. Verse 22 says that he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And the first church mentioned here, he went up and greeted the church, that that church uh, almost certainly refers to the church at Jerusalem, to the very first church, to the mother church from which all other churches came. Uh, Jerusalem is south of Caesarea, if you saw it on the map. Jerusalem is south of Caesarea, but notice that Paul went up, and that's just because it was at a higher elevation. So he went up in elevation, and though we aren't told why Paul did so, why he went to Jerusalem, it's probably because um, it was probably to complete his vow. That's where the vows were typically completed. They were completed at the temple in the holy city where they would take their shorn hair uh, and offer it as a burnt offering after this 30-day period of purification. So most agree that that's probably why Paul made, uh, made a point to go to the church in Jerusalem. And then after Jerusalem, he went down. Again, he came down in elevation. He went down to the church at Antioch. Now, Antioch had become basically his home church. It was his sending church. It was the church that had uh, commissioned him and Silas to begin with. And so Paul uh, wanted to, he's now come full circle, and he wants to report back to the church at Antioch. And what I want us to see simply is I want us to see Paul's commitment to the church. Because I think we need to hear that. Not necessarily we, we, but we in general, the Christian community, people in general, we need to hear this. Because there are well-meaning people today, particularly I've noticed them a lot among the younger generation, although certainly uh, this isn't a younger problem only. There are well-meaning people today, including many Christians, who, who are very eager to engage in missions-related activity, but they have disengaged from the church. And so they want to build wells for clean drinking water, which is great. People who want to help with disaster relief when fires or floods or hurricanes or earthquakes uh, just destroy homes and neighborhoods unexpectedly. People who align themselves with a parachurch ministry and engage in some type of mission-related activity but all of it, as, as wonderful as these examples are of 
uh, of missions opportunities or opportunities for service, uh, I think it's important that we understand that God intends his mission to be carried out through the church, not apart from it. Even though much of Paul's time was spent out on the mission field, he always saw himself as an extension of the church, or churches, plural. Those churches that had sent him and supported him. And now that his second trip is nearing its end, he made sure to spend time with the founding church in Jerusalem and the sending church in Antioch. And then according to verse 23, when he leaves for his third trip, he again stops first to see and strengthen the churches that he helped plant in the region of Galatia and Phrygia. He was committed to the church. Paul's ministry was marked by a pledge of personal devotion, by continual dependence on God, and by a commitment to the church. And I think we do well if those things, as those things characterize our lives, we do well. There's one more thing, though, one more detail. It's worth noting, I actually think it's essential that we see this. And that is that Paul consistently involved others in the work which served to multiply the mission exponentially. We're told that Paul brought Priscilla and Aquila with him to Asia. Remember, we were introduced to this couple for the first time last week in the previous passage. Aquila and Priscilla were married. They had been living in Rome when Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews in that city. They expelled the Jews from that city, and so they relocated to Corinth. They met Paul. They opened their home to Paul. uh, Paul lived with them. And because all three of them were tent makers by trade, um, they worked together. And over the 18 or so months that Paul was in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila were very much involved in the effort. So when Paul left Corinth... He made sure to bring them, this husband-wife team, he made sure to bring them along with him. Uh, I want you to see this. Paul, Paul believed that more could be done for God's kingdom when more of God's people were involved in the work. I believe, although I'm sure he wouldn't have used this terminology, but I believe that that Paul believed in a team-oriented approach. Though he is certainly the central figure in Luke's account at this point in in the book of Acts, and and he's the apparent leader of the group, notice that he, he never isolates himself or operates independently of others. Instead, he's always including others in the work and developing them 
for additional ministry down the road. Now, I'm a huge believer in, in a, this team-oriented approach. In fact, whenever I take uh, those personality tests, I'm sure you've taken some too, those personality tests or those surveys that relate to a person's uh, areas of giftedness or similar surveys, uh, with, without question, the results always come back and reveal that I work best when I work with teams. Uh, I'm at my strongest when I'm with like-minded people who want to accomplish something together. It's uh, probably the main reason why I have never been a believer or proponent in the pastor-driven church model. In fact, my, that just, that's never appealed to me. In fact, the, my greatest satisfaction, some of you know this, my greatest satisfaction in ministry comes whenever I can help someone else step into a ministry role. Because disciple-making is always about one person becoming two, and two becoming four, and four becoming eight, and so on. The more people involved, the greater the reach. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, remember, he gathered his disciples and told them to make more disciples. Because discipleship is always reproductive. A full understanding of discipleship always has a multiplication component to it. I think sometimes when we hear the word discipleship, we equate that to Bible study. I need more Bible study. I need to learn more. And learning more is certainly part of it. But discipleship, true discipleship, always has a multiplication component to it. Think about this. Paul's first journey was with him and Barnabas. And there was John Mark, remember? John was there too at the very beginning. As they prepare to leave for their second journey, they disagree on what to do with John. Do we bring him or not? And so Barnabas and John left for Cyprus, and Paul and Silas left for Syria. Paul and Silas come to the city of Lystra, and they meet Timothy. Timothy's probably 16 or 17 years old at the time, and yet Paul saw something in Timothy, and Timothy wanted to be part of something that was bigger than himself, and so Timothy joined the team. And then again, after those closed-door experience, they come down to Troas, and it seems they met Luke in Troas, and so now Luke joins the team as they cross over into Macedonia. They come to Philippi, and they meet a woman named Lydia, Lydia comes to faith in Christ, along with many of the Philippians, and the church in Philippi begins meeting in her home. While Paul and the rest of the ministry team continue on to Thessalonica, where they meet Jason. They continue to Berea, and because of the opposition of the Jews uh, in Thessalonica, the team sends Paul up ahead to Athens, 
After Paul's ministry in Athens, including his well-known speech at the Areopagus, he continues to Corinth, where he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and is now reunited with Silas and Timothy. And in Corinth, we're also introduced to two individuals, uh, Titius Justus and a man named Crispus, who become founding members of the church in Corinth. And so after 18 or so months, Paul prepares to leave the church uh, there, and he brings Priscilla and Aquila along with him. But Priscilla and Aquila, notice, were far more than mere bystanders. They were far more than just passive receivers of Paul's ministry. They were active participants in the ministry themselves. Uh, They remain in Ephesus for about another four or five years. We know this in Scripture. They hosted the church at Ephesus in their home, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and Romans chapter 16. Uh, Paul, Paul says that, that they, the, they, meaning Priscilla and Aquila, they risked their lives for him, probably during the riot that we'll read about in the next chapter. And so having Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus pays immediate di- dividends. No one knew it at the time, but these two would play key roles in the church at Ephesus as well as back at the church at Corinth. Because as we see here in verses 24 through 28, uh, this man named Apollos enters the scene. Paul has moved on. Apollos comes to Ephesus. Uh, He's a very powerful speaker, very well educated in the scriptures, but something's off. And so Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside. They meet with him. They mentor him. They teach him the way of God more accurately. And then, by all accounts, Apollos becomes a man on fire. And he is just preaching Christ left and right, and people are coming to Christ left and right. He even goes back to the church at Corinth, where Paul just left, and the Jews that refuted Paul, Apollos is now refuting them. What I want us to see is that what began three years earlier with just Paul and Silas had become Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, Lydia, Jason, Aquila, Priscilla, Titius Justus, Crispus, and Apollos. And this list includes only those whose names we know. So after three years on the mission field, now not only was Paul on mission, but so were all these others. Apollos is in Corinth ministering the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus ministering the gospel. Paul is ministering the gospel in Jerusalem, then Antioch, then Galatia and Phrygia before returning to Ephesus where he'll spend the next two years. Paul, you see... He purposed to involve others in the work and thus reproduced himself time and time again. He did so by empowering them to continue in ministry even when he wasn't present. Now, those of you know, I'm, I'm a big sports guy. 
And in sports, there are certain players who come along and we call them multipliers. They're the, the, the people who look to develop others. They look to include and develop others who make others around them better. Paul knew, he knew very well it seems, that the church needs more multipliers. That if we're to extend the reach of our ministry, we must equip others to share in the work and empower them to take ownership. And so I just want to close with this. I want you to think about your present involvement in ministry right now. How are you presently involved in ministry? Could be a ministry of the church. Could be a ministry outside of the church. Could be both, inside and outside. How are you involved in ministry right now? And who are you serving with? Who's part of your team? Who is helping to develop you? And who are you helping to develop? Who will you pass your ministry on to? As Paul did with Priscilla and Aquila. I've heard it put this way. Who are you reaching with the gospel? Who are you raising raising up in the gospel and who will you release for greater gospel ministry? The mission of God and God's people is meant to multiply. Just as it moved from person to person in Paul's day, and from Paul's day to ours, so we must see ourselves as participants in the mission and then help others to see themselves in the same way. Amen. Amen. God, thank you again for our time. We trust that it's been helpful. And we lean upon you for even greater help. So would you continue to take the truth from your word here in this passage and just cause us to mull on it. Maybe today you're calling us to make some type of pledge of personal devotion, something extra, something in addition, something that would be a public 
display of our love for you. Maybe, maybe we're facing a situation and we're not sure which way to go. We're not sure of your will. And so would you just instill in us and build in us a greater dependence on you? Would you give us a greater desire for your word that we would search the scriptures for answers? And in those hidden things, would you give us confidence to know that, that, that as we go, you go with us and, and you promise to lead us and Maybe it's a matter of our commitment to the church. Lord, would you just continue to reinstill the, this value that you've so, clearly, uh, you've so clearly given to the church throughout history that, that your mission is meant to move forward through the church, not apart from it. And then, Lord, maybe it's, maybe it's about the people in our lives and who we're serving with and what the goal is, who's developing us and who are we developing so that the work can, can grow exponentially as we invest into one another. Whatever it is, Lord, we look to you, we need you, and we trust you to provide. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.